all of a sudden we found these fiscally conservative Democrats coming out saying the real problem here is this is a waste of taxpayer dollars. All right, so let's get real because what Pruitt has- We're the fiscally responsible party, Shane. We're the ones that have been cutting the deficit. I don't know if you noticed, but <laughs> your guy Ryan is now going to have a trillion dollar yeah. deficit. The, par- the party <laughs> the party out of power always tends to be very fiscally responsible. We, we held Obama's feet to the fire and now, you know, people in power spend money. House Speaker Paul Ryan is headed out of Congress. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt is in hot water. And the man dubbed the Koch brothers' favorite congressman is being considered to run the State Department. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environment politics in America. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media, and I'm joined here by our Democrat and Republican co-hosts. We have Brandon Hurlbut, co-founder of the consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners, a former Obama White House staffer, and a former chief of staff for Energy Secretary Stephen Chu. And we have Shane Skelton, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific, a former congressional candidate, and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan, although he won't be in that role much longer, we learned this week. Anyway, there's lots of drama going on in Washington, and we'll tackle all of that. But first, how are you guys doing? Julia, I had an amazing week. I was at uh, an offsite sponsored by a major utility, Southern California. And, and an offsite is for our listeners? <laughs> it's a retreat. Um, Highly exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> the goal was to talk about how to electrify the transportation sector. Probably not that exclusive. And <laughs> <laughs> When I was at the Department of Energy, you, you uh, thought you had a good week. <laughs> now we're making fun of you. <laughs> but go on. Um, we discussed how to electrify the transportation sector. And uh, I'm very optimistic because uh, Southern Cal Edison wants to be very aggressive about this. And we had terrific conversation. But uh, on Wednesday, while I was there, my phone lit up with all these notifications that Speaker Paul Ryan had just decided he's not going to run for re-election and announced it. Um, and my first thought was I couldn't wait to talk to Shane about this. Yeah. So my week was obviously really interesting, too. Um, maybe not as exciting as yours, but interesting nonetheless. I, I want to unpack this because I think it's critically important, not just to to you know Republicans and, and to the country, but also to what we talk about here on this podcast. But I'm going to suck all the oxygen out of the room when I do that. So, Julia, how are you? How was your week? Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, I was in uh, I was in New York at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, Summit, and um, I also had the honor of speaking at a Hawthorne Club event, which is for executive women in energy. Um, Nancy Fund, uh, DBL Partners, was uh, moderating a panel there, and it was actually interesting. I was able to use some material from our first episode that we did that would sort of set up this entire podcast by using your point, Shane, that. Uh, you know, do we really need to say climate change and have politicians say that term to get any action done on it? Amy Harder from Axios was there on the same panel, and she said, you know, if we can't say climate change, how can we ever solve it? But, you know, to your point, Shane, speaking from the Republican perspective, it's kind of a political dead end to to go there and, and to embrace the Democrat um, talking points on it. But that doesn't mean you can't get some really solid clean energy policy done. So I, I should, really should credit you with that point. No, I appreciate it. And I think, you know, depending on what side of the aisle you're on on any particular issue, naming it is important um, or it isn't, right? I mean, I don't want to get into this at all, but Republicans used to say, if President Obama can't say radical Islamic terrorism, we can't combat it. Of course, that's not true. You can combat terrorism by combating terrorism. Right. You don't have to call it what, what your opponent prefers you to call it. So 
I think that's that's a wasted point, but I'm, but I'm glad you had an opportunity to bring it up and yeah, discuss it. Yeah, I'm learning lots from this podcast already. <laughs> and we hope our listeners tuning in have found it interesting so far. So check out that first episode to get a sense of what political climate is all about. This week, we're jumping right into some of the shifts, the changes that are going on in the Republican Party and in Trump administration leadership. Let's kick it off first with the Paul Ryan news. Uh, We are a long way from that infamous photo of him lifting weights as this young, ambitious Republican lawmaker looking to transform the government spending system. Uh, Shane, you know, you you worked for Paul Ryan. Super interested in what you make of his departure. Were you, were you surprised? Yeah, so I wasn't surprised. Um, I'm disappointed, uh, not not in him at all, but in what this means for our party. And and I think what the other side will soon learn is what it means for our country. I think um, that that lawmaker you uh, you explained the 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 weightlifting young man who you know wanted to overhaul entitlements. I don't think he ever left. I mean, he grew a little bit older. He matured a little bit. He got more experience. But I think he's always been. Um, that type of idealistic. And, uh, you know, it's a hit to the Republican Party, right? He's the biggest fundraiser, not just now, but the the biggest fundraiser we've ever had in Congress. Um, He's done a a lot to help us keep and and grow our majority, um, or at least keep our majority, I should say. But I think the country as a whole loses. And I think while Democrats are going to be happy to see him go because he's the leader of the Republican Party, just as we would be happy to see, you know, Nancy Pelosi go, um, he's the adult in the room. And I think, you know, when we talk about all sorts of policy, but but specifically energy and environmental policy, that matters quite a bit. Uh, I, I won't sit here and tell you, and I handled energy and environment issues for for Paul, and I'm not going to sit here and say that that was his focus, that he was super, you know, interested in making sure that we enacted strong environmental protections or pursued clean energy policies. But he was always the adult in the room. He was always open to listening to facts, having honest discussions, um, negotiating in good faith and making deals. And so, you know, when you look at a lot of the past efforts Republicans have had uh, to reduce some of these regulations, a lot of environmental riders, a lot of different sort of add-ons to bills that were going to move, um, Paul understood that getting across the finish line with everyone in the room feeling like they got a win was critically important. Um, and sometimes that win on the Democratic side was not having a host of environmental riders. So again, I'm not going to pretend like he was the biggest champion of, of, of clean energy. I don't think he was against it. I don't think he was for it. I don't think it was on his radar. Um, that was sort of my job and, and someone else's job after me. But I think Democrats have had a, a better time than they know having an honest and, and, and open negotiating partner to try to advance legitimate policy. And uh, and I'm not sure that they're going to have that moving forward. And and, and that's not a specific commentary on, on Kevin McCarthy. It's not a specific commentary on Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan or whoever else gets in the race. It's a commentary on everyone but Paul. I think he's just a rare individual. And I think um, we're going to see a, a dramatic sea change in, in how uh, how the House negotiates and what its posture is in a post-Paul Ryan era. That's going to be interesting. I mean, some people on the left would say that Paul Ryan dropped any opportunity to act on climate. You know, Brandon, in our first episode, you talked about the days when Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi were trying to act on climate, and we haven't had anything close to a climate bill in years. And so I'm sure a lot of of Democrats would say it's great that Paul Ryan's out, but to your point, Shane, we don't really know what else is coming. So, Brandon, what did the Democrats say when when you got that news? Well, I would say, you know, I'm grateful that he passed the budget that they passed for this year that protected, you know, clean energy um, investments. Uh, so as we mentioned last week, you know, grateful for that. Uh, this is a short-term thing because it's an election year uh, and the Congress isn't going to do much anyway. Uh, and we're going to have a Democratic speaker uh, in the fall. So uh, does you know, that's 
That's all that matters. <laughs> Sound really confident. The, the blue wave is coming. Yes. Sorry, I, ne- I nearly fell asleep. Was he saying anything that seemed important? <laughs> I was just got really bored really fast. I mean, <laughs> Friday I think, afternoon. I yeah. think the speaker saw the writing on the wall, and uh, that's one well, of the clearly, he left. yeah. I mean, that was the thing. Clearly, he thought he didn't have much of a shot at staying on. I mean, so so, and I don't mean to interrupt you guys, but I but I don't think that's true. I yeah. think you know Paul's uh, loyalty and commitment has always been to his family. He never planned on staying in Washington two decades. I think he was there longer than he wanted to be. I'm certain that as anyone would in any circumstance, current, you know, the current dynamic probably influenced his decision making process. But but I do think that even if he was certain we were going to hold on to the house, and I'm not saying that he is, I, I don't know that that would have had a huge impact on his decision. I mean, this decision came after two weeks out of the country with his wife and kids. Um, that's not a place he was thinking about electoral politics or counting votes. That's where he was you know, realizing that he'd been a weekend father for most of his kids' lives and didn't want them to leave for college in that, in that so, regard. So, well, maybe he didn't leave because he thought he wouldn't get reelected, but it seems as though he's leaving because he doesn't want to be associated with what might be coming next and maybe where the Republican Party is going. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone takes this decision lightly when you're in that position of power. No, but I think it's, I think it's really more so than saying, you know, I want to avoid what's going on now. I think what you're looking at is, what did I come here to achieve? What have I achieved and what can I still achieve? So what did he come here to achieve? Um, entitlement reform and tax reform. Uh, tax reform's done. Entitlement reform is not going to get done. So it's not like if he stayed two, three, four, five more years, he'd get that done. So if you're, if you're him, you're going, I did half of what I came here to do and the other half is undoable. So why extend my time here if I'm 100% certain I can't achieve the only thing that I want to achieve? The larger point, Julia, that you, you made is that Congress needs to get more involved. Uh, the last time that the Congress passed anything meaningful on energy was 2007. That was 11 years ago. Think about how different things are in energy than they were uh, in 2007. And so in the beginning of the Obama administration, we were hoping Congress would act. We didn't want to do everything through the EPA. Uh, that's why we passed you know, cap and trade in the House. And that was a Republican idea uh, that we thought you know, was a good compromise. And um, now, you know, uh, because the Congress wouldn't act on it, you know, the president used the EPA because we're running out of time at this you know, retreat we were talking about. Uh, we learned that, you know, a major city in Japan in, in China uh, has gone all electric, 13,000, you know, electric buses. Wow. Uh, and so we're we're losing ground uh, to the Chinese on this. We need to move faster and the Congress needs to get in this game. And that's why I'm happy we're going to have a Democratic speaker who's going to do it. So agreeing with everything except that last sentence, right. um, I, I think what, what is interesting and what we'll continue to talk about for months and what we should talk about for months is how do the politics interact with the ability to pass new energy legislation? So there was a hearing this morning, and I won't get into the the details of it, but some of the commentary anecdotally was interesting. The hearing was on high-octane fuels and the renewable fuel standard. We can talk about that another day because I think it's interesting. But the commentary from Chairman Walden that I thought was telling was, those of us who were here in 2005 and 2007, when we enacted the last two major pieces of energy legislation, acted in good faith based on what we knew to be true at the time, right? We were at peak oil. We were running out of supply. Um, we needed domestic sources because we had a lot of hostility in the Middle East that we we weren't sure how it was going to play out. We were importing LNG. Yeah, we were importing LNG. I mean, that wasn't even that long ago in the early 2000s. Yeah, well, I guess that's what we're talking about. We were importing LNG. And so his point was- We thought was, there had to be a price on carbon for renewables to even have a chance. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so without even getting into the, the policy specifics, I think the point is at that point, 
everyone on both sides was willing to be an honest broker. Here are our circumstances, dire as they may be, let's act together to fix them. Now we're in a time of surplus, as we talked about on the last podcast. And surplus does not create bedfellows, right? You, you, you find allies when you need them to survive. Right now we have a surplus of everything, renewables, oil, gas, coal, everything. We have way too much of everything. So now it comes a choice. And choices are political, not policy-driven. Policy is sort of a backstop to dire circumstances. And now we're in a situation where it's not what do we need, what does our country need, it's what do you want and what do I want. That plays out on the campaign trail, not in the Capitol. Let's switch to Scott Pruitt. He's played an interesting role as the head of the EPA. I mean, some people would say he's really gone out of his way to support the fossil fuel industry, which is interesting as in this time of surplus, as you describe. Um, does the EPA really need to be... a stepping in there. Um, So he's faced backlash for that. Uh, Now he's facing backlash over some personal conflicts of interest, it seems, with everything from a $25,000 phone booth to renting a room in Washington, D.C. tied to an energy lobbyist, first-class travel, security expenses. So that's obviously now triggered up quite the media storm. He's uh, also, it's also triggered half a dozen investigations. Brandon, what do you make of all this drama? Any organization, the tone is set at the top. Uh, the leadership really, uh, you know, sets that tone. And when I was in the White House, uh, I worked there in the first year, and I was in an office called Cabinet Affairs. We were responsible for planning the cabinet meetings. And so I was fortunate enough to attend the first cabinet meeting that President Obama had. And uh, it was so exciting. It's a very small room. There's very few people in there. And the president basically asked everyone to you know, speak up and talk about what they wanted to do, um, you know, what their agenda was for the administration. And because it was the first meeting, everybody, there was a lot of excitement. Uh, each cabinet member was saying how excited they were to be there and happy and honored to serve. Uh, and then when it got to President Obama, you know, there's rosy, warm feeling in the meeting. He talked about corruption and ethics. And he said very directly to each cabinet member that not only if there was impropriety, but the hint of impropriety, and he would fire them. Uh, and he was very stern about it. it and was and, yet, very he let, and let, yet he let Eric Holder keep his job. So we're all, we're all very <laughs> He wasn't talking about made up scandals, real scandals. <laughs> I thought the hint, the hint of scandal. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The hint of a real scandal. I <laughs> so, but the point is that, you know, the president was very direct that he wasn't going to tolerate any ethics scandals. And what is happening over at the EPA is just a disgrace. And, you know, one of the things that has come out in uh, the last you know couple of days is the deputy chief of staff uh, was called up in front of Congress and uh, basically said uh, that he was trying to raise awareness uh, of these ethics violations and he was punished for them. He even said that the chief of staff had told them uh, when he took the job and had to deal with the operations, now the nightmares for you. And so I can tell you, I when I first went to the DOE, I was deputy chief of staff before I was chief of staff. You know, there's you have real loyalty to your boss. Uh, if that person is going to uh, the Congress and telling them about these improprieties, um, that means that there's more to come. Mm. Uh, that means that what you've seen publicly, I think, is the tip of the iceberg. Wait till the subpoenas, you know, really start flying and and they start doing Freedom of Information Act requests and really digging into this. That's my guess is that uh, there's there's more there. Right. So as I mentioned, there's some investigations kicking off. I guess we'll see where those lead. If he's removed, you go to the number two, right? Which is, I guess, interesting given that we just had the number two confirmed. 
that being Andrew Wheeler, who worked at the EPA more than two decades ago, uh, later served for Senator um, James Inhofe, Republican from Oklahoma. For the past nine years. The guy years, who brought the snowball into the Congress and that said would global be the guy. warming isn't happening. That guy. That was his former boss, yes. <laughs> so. um, for the past nine years, Wheeler has been a lobbyist for varying uh, companies, including Appalachian oil mining firm Murray Energy. And I actually just saw uh, Robert Murray speak at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit this week, really saying that uh, if we don't shore up coal and nuclear, people are going to, quote, die in the dark. So he sees this in very stark terms. Andrew Wheeler, I guess, used to work for Murray Energy. But what, is, what does that mean? Brandon, going back to you, I think you, you worked with Andrew, right? Do you think that he will have a hard line on climate issues in terms of, you know, pushing back on the climate science the way that Pruitt has and being so, so overtly uh, pro-fossil fuel? Andrew worked at the law firm. At one point in my life, I actually was a lawyer uh, <laughs> before I packed up my bags in early March of 07 uh, and joined the Obama campaign uh, as one of the first hires. Uh, so I Th- Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I took a big pay cut <laughs> to go from the uh, 30-year associate at a corporate <laughs> law firm to uh, the Obama campaign, but it's because I was so inspired, and that's, that's the truth. Uh, so Andrew worked at the law firm that I had worked at. So we were not lawyers there at the same time. Uh, but I've gotten to know Andrew cause I stayed uh, in touch, um, you know, with my, you know, former colleagues from there and Andrew and I don't agree on almost anything on, um, you know, climate. Uh, but what I can tell you is from my personal experience with him, uh, I don't think we're going to be seeing the same kind of problems we're seeing with Pruitt. So, you know, as in terms um, of the personal um, sort of spending habits and things like that or on the policy side? No, on, on the personal side. Um, you know, I think, you know, Andrew's an upstanding guy. And uh, while we're not going to get the policies we want out of the EPA, um, you know, from from Andrew, most likely, um, I think that we're not going to get this corruption and, and ethics. Well, and, and let me let me jump in there for a second because the discussion about um, Andrew Wheeler is sort of premised on the fact that Pruitt will be removed, and I'm not sure that that we can make that assumption at this point. Um, but but I just want to jump in on that because it's not you know the natural successor; it would be the successor in the case that Pruitt were removed and another administrator weren't confirmed, and and I, I don't think that's going to happen. So would it not become the fact that Andrew could be recommended to become the administrator, even in the, from the number two position to number one? That could happen, but but. Um, you would still need to be confirmed as the administrator. So he'd automatically be moved into that space in the interim basis. Um, but he would still need to be confirmed if he were recommended. And and I, I do think I think that the conversation is a good one to have, but I but I do think that we're we're I think a far ways removed from from Pruitt being removed from office. Um It's interesting how that will play out for the Republicans because um by keeping uh Scott Pruitt in office, I think it's gonna be a weapon that the Democrats will use in the midterms because he's the poster child for what Trump was supposed to fix about Washington and did not. But let me ask you this, Brandon, because we we've talked about how this was really going to be an election about intensity. Right. I mean, people don't change their views overnight, but they do go out and vote because they're you know upset or excited about something. And so if the Democrats choose to weaponize, you know, whatever they see as, as Scott Pruitt's uh, shortcomings, that does a, a similar job in motivating the Republican base. I mean, he's a hero to a lot of people. Um, and I don't mean because of first class tickets. I mean, because of some of the policies that he's pursued. It is absolutely true that that people who are environmentally conscious and, and tend to lean left are never going to go out and vote uh, because of Pruitt. They might vote against him. But but I don't think it necessarily hurts with the base and, and ginning up 
ginning up the right. And I guess my, my question to you would be uh, sort of twofold is how much does it matter? It's definitely not good, right? Like anytime you're spending public funds on personal items or interests, it's not good. But I think there are two things that, that we need and to look at. And punishing whistleblowers. That's another level of, you know. Um, yeah, it isn't good. Right. I mean, there's no doubt that it isn't good. But I mean, two questions I would ask about anyone, whether it's Scott Pruitt or anyone else, is is first, um, you know, all of a sudden we found these fiscally conservative Democrats coming out saying the real problem here is this is a waste of taxpayer dollars. All right. So let's get real, because what Pruitt has. We're the fiscally responsible party, Shane. We're the ones <laughs> that have been cutting the deficit. I don't know if you noticed, but <laughs> your guy, Ryan, is not going to have a trillion dollar yeah. deficit. The, par- the party. <laughs> <laughs> the party out of power always tends to be very fiscally responsible. We we held Obama's feet to the fire, and now you know people in power spend money, right? I mean that that sort of the the Republicans in power spend more money than Democrats. That, that may be true. We 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 don't consider tax cut spending, so I would take I would take issue with you there. But um, <laughs> but sure, we we improved upon the the restrictive Obama Deficits budget. Deficits are a problem for Republicans when Democrats are in control, but not when Republicans Sp- spending driven deficits. But 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 so yeah, I mean, joking aside, because I think we could do this all day. I think we'd have a lot of fun doing it all day. <laughs> Down the boxing but gloves, on guys. The, on, the, on the Pruitt front, I mean, the two things I would look at is if you actually care about the EPA budget. I mean, let's focus solely on just the spending. His his salary, all right, his travel, his incidentals, those come out of the EPA budget, which he's trying to cut. So it's not a matter of government spending, let's be honest. It's a matter of Pruitt spending. But nobody actually cares about how his spending is impacting the deficit. You're talking about thousands of dollars in a, in a multi-trillion dollar Hundreds budget. Hundreds and maybe millions. Yeah. Um, and, and the second, well, EPA is spending less. So I guess we should thank him for being more more conservative. But but at the same time, um, and an honest question would be if if Lisa Jackson or Gina McCarthy had um, who was pursuing policies you liked, had they flown first class? Would anyone care? Because I know I wouldn't have, and I doubt the Democrats would have. I doubt we'd have hearings about a first class flight for Lisa Jackson. I'm not saying that she did that. Maybe she was more fiscally responsible. But the point is, it's the policies and the politics that are driving people. No one should pretend to care about paying $450 for a ticket instead of $250. Because I work in government, I've been there, and and people don't care about those small amounts of money. I think it was the trips that he was going on that maybe he didn't need to go on. There are reports that he was saying, "Find me something to do in so, X Y Z place." So let's and- look at like Morocco. in this opulent hotel and not the one that the government recommended. I think it's an attitude, you know, as a public servant, uh, I felt like it was an honor and a privilege. And I was there to do my best for the American people and to protect their, 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 their money and, and take your own pay cut to do so. That's right. You and and it's the stuff like putting the siren on your car, you know, to get to the restaurant faster, uh, you know, that when you're not at risk on security and he, and he hasn't been at risk on security on any of this stuff, they can't find any of these death threats. And I just think it's, it's an attitude, uh, where you're above the law and you're different from people. Uh, and that is, I think, you know, that, that, that's when someone's unfit for office. Uh, no, it's problematic. It's problematic. And, and anecdotally, what's, what's kind of fun is I never really spent government money, but, uh, when I worked for, for Bob Latta, and it's just fun to talk about in this sense, um, he represents Northwest Ohio, just a wonderful guy and, and genuinely a steward of taxpayer money. And he used to tell us when you go back to the district, we do a week in the district to, you know, meet with constituents and stuff. Um, I never want to see a meal expense report it's more than $5 plus tax. Because if you can't find it, go to Subway. You can get a $5 footlock. So I do love that attitude, right? I love the idea that people, even though it's not their money, they want to be more careful with it because it's someone else's. And I don't think there's a legitimate way 
to defend some of these activities. And maybe, you know, Shane, it's if it was one thing, it was, you know, some extra first class tickets, but it's the totality of all of this. You know, he was giving pay raises to his Oklahoma friends, as staffers, even the White House, the Trump White House was saying this person shouldn't get a raise. And, you know, Pruitt is requiring it to happen and then lying about it and saying he didn't know. That's a huge problem. Right. These are... Exactly. We're really harping on about this because it is important. But I think, Shane, going back to your point about the policy substance, like Pruitt, as you say, was not out of step with what a lot of conservatives believe. And some people say he's been really effective, perhaps the most effective at enacting Trump's agenda on, on energy and environment issues. Although I will note there was actually a Gallup poll recently that rated Trump lower on managing energy and environment issues, both separately, uh, rated him lower than the past two presidents, um, Obama and Bush. So Trump seems to be not faring so well in the public's eye. But let me just go back to to your point about about the policies. I mean, regardless of whether it's Pruitt or somebody else, will, will the EPA's position change on anything, Shane, do you think? And is it going in the right direction? Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh I think in some areas it's going in the right direction. In some areas, perhaps it's not. Um, I think the answer to the bigger question is no, it's absolutely not going to change. Um, whether or not you know Pruitt stays as long as he wants, whether or not he's sidelined, whether or not he leaves by choice, this EPA has a mandate. And in, in their mandate is, as Brandon mentioned earlier in, in today's um, show, they feel like Obama used the Clean Air Act and other laws that um, you know govern EPA activity in a way that was meant to compensate for the fact that the legislature wasn't acting. And so what they want to do is they want to draw EPA back to the actions it took under, you know, existing government law and kick back to Congress any issues that weren't settled in in, in the House and Senate. And so I, I don't think that any replacement for Scott Pruitt or Scott Pruitt himself is going to change course. I think the idea is we have authority and mandates under statutes. That's what we can do. That's all we can do. Nothing more, nothing less. And if we want to take more severe action in any specific direction, um, this is what democracy is, right? You kick that to the public. They elect their members. They elect their senators. And we figure it out in the legislature. It may slow them down because I was at the DOE when we had uh, you know, Solyndra and such. And even though that was a made up scandal, these real scandals, they will have to dedicate time and resources to dealing with it. When you have the, you know, the press uh, and the Congress asking for all those documents, you know, having to go up and answer, you know, lots of questions. Um, it just takes time away from doing, executing on the agenda and, and dealing with that, especially when you've become this national story. Uh, the, that the, the heat is on and that just requires a, a lot of time and, and resources to deal with that. And the other point um, is that, you know, at least the silver lining in this, you know, and this, the attention that Pruitt's getting is it's giving a little life to some of the policies that he is doing. I don't think a lot of people pay attention on a daily basis to what CAFE is and what, you know, right. fuel economy standards fuel are. Economy standards, right? right. But now because of the story, it's bringing that to light and some of the policies that he's been trying to enact and how detrimental they are for our environment. And, and it may give it more attention and excite our people as well. Yeah. I think it's worth noting too. So, Let's let's list some of the actions. Um, the Clean Power Plan, Obama's um, electricity industry. Uh, so, so Julie, let me interrupt you. You said it exactly right. It's an electricity industry issue, not an EPA issue, and that was the problem with the Clean Power Plan from the outset. EPA doesn't have any authority over the electric grid, only over emissions. Well, Supreme Court gave it the power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Right, On-site. the endangerment On-site. finding. Right. 
We can debate the clean power plan another day. That is something <laughs> that Pruitt took on, and it's something that you know conservatives clearly want um, to see repealed. It just I mentioned Bob Murray. He he mentioned that this week that that's his number one request would to see the endangerment finding overturned. So anyway, going back to, to Pruitt's list, we have you know trying to repeal the clean power plan, fuel economy standards. Uh, Obama-era clean water regulation known as the Waters of the United States um, and tried to reverse a range of other regulations related to fossil fuel extraction. The thing is, some of these are still working through the process. I think it's worth noting that Pruitt has acted in many ways in making the announcements on some of these rollbacks, but my understanding is they are still being rolled back. There's a or lot, they're in court. Or they're in the courts. And so to your point, Brandon, I guess there could be really some slowdowns on the rollbacks because there's a lot of technical work that needs to be done there. Certainly something like the endangerment finding Pruitt hasn't even touched yet because of the legal technicalities from the sounds of it. So you could see Trump's, you know, energy and environment policies uh, stalled because of this drama. So really, really quick, I want to hear from Brandon more than more than I want to hear from myself on this. But but the endangerment finding, I think to roll that back would be a terrible decision. I mean, I don't think, you know, whether you're pro-climate or whether you're not pro-climate as a strategic matter, you couldn't do anything stupider than that. Because a lot of federal courts, when these lawsuits come up about, you know, ExxonMobil should be held accountable for global emissions, the federal courts kick them out and they say, EPA has claimed jurisdiction over this issue, which is clearly an interstate commerce issue. Um and as long as they have jurisdiction and they're willing to act, it's no place for the courts to act. If EPA overturns the endangerment finding, they are basically saying the federal government has decided not to act in this space. And then all those lawsuits are going to stick because the court has an opening. The federal government hasn't claimed jurisdiction and courts are going to have a, have their freedom to act. So whether it's because you want to limit carbon emissions or whether it's because you're a savvy attorney, the last thing in the world you want to do is roll back the endangerment finding. On the other side, I think everything you said is correct, but I think that's going to be the case forever under any administration. There will never be another regulation that doesn't end up in litigation for years. I think that's just sort of the way it goes, whether you're enacting it or, or rolling it back. But but more interested in hearing from you, Brandon, on where you think this is going. Yeah, I just think the issue of time. I mean, you know, when when you are getting all these questions from the from the from reporters like you, uh, Julia, I can't tell you, um, you know, or, or I can tell you there are meetings happening all day right now at the EPA just trying to deal with this. Mm -hmm. They're getting this request, you know, from uh, this congressional member. They're going to have to prepare for this hearing. Prepping for those hearings or, you know, you have to get it right takes a lot of like energy and time, you know, from the political staff. Lawyers have to be looking, you know, through, you know, different documents and reviewing them before they send over to Congress. It just, it will derail and slow down, you know, some of their efforts on repealing this. And, but we don't have time on the climate for a slowdown. And when you think about just on the renewable energy and storage and decentralization and smart grid, we don't have time because China's doing it. <laughs> we, you know, they have cap and trade, right? This that we talked about it earlier in the in the episode, the 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 bill that we got passed in the House, China's doing it. You know, we're doing it here in California, uh, but, you know, the country doesn't the, have time. The Waxman Marquis bill. Yeah. You know, the, the country does not have time uh, to waste on this issue. Even if you look at it just from the purely economic issue and the job growth issue that, you know, the opportunities that are here, uh, we need to get going. China's electrifying and we can't, you know, we need to catch up. So this is a place, too, where Brandon and I agree completely. I mean, I think some of the problems that we have are most easily solved 
in a way that also solves other problems that we have. Like we're talking about resiliency all day long, right? Resiliency and reliability. So of course, what we need to do is provide an emergency order that overpays coal plants. No, that's insane, right? I mean, if you want resiliency, especially in California, when you look at the wildfire issues, um, having microgrids, having distributed resources that can function if some central transmission line goes down. That's not what we want is a transmission line to go down, but you can solve a lot of your resiliency and reliability problems in investing in cutting edge technologies that also help trim down carbon emissions and other toxic emissions. To me, it, it, and this goes back to Julia, what you mentioned earlier about, do we have to agree on calling it you know, climate change or whatever? I do, Brandon does, but we don't have to because if you just want to solve the legitimate problems that we have, reliable, affordable, resilient power, you can do that with some really cool renewable technologies. And as, as Brandon mentioned, some of these are being demonstrated globally. This isn't something that we have to watch a movie about 2030 to get to. I mean, this is stuff that that we're all, every one of us here is really excited about. We don't necessarily agree on who should win elections and what campaigns should be run around, but this is stuff that like, this is no brainer. Let's switch to Mike Pompeo quickly before we wrap things up. He was being questioned in Congress this week. He's now, now been nominated to head up the State Department um, after Rex Tillerson was removed from that position. People didn't love Rex Tillerson on the climate issues, although he did advocate for staying in the Paris Agreement. Um, Mike Pompeo, you know, he has been associated with the Koch brothers who fund um here very, you know, embedded in the fossil fuel industry. Um, and he's denied climate change in the past. Interestingly, in his hearing this week, he told Democratic Senator Jeff Markley that, quote, I believe the climate is changing, that there's a warming taking place. I'm happy to concede there's likely a human component to that. So that was kind of interesting. Maybe he's warming to climate change. I mean, Brandon, what do you think about where Mike Pompeo might take the State Department? I'm scared. Um <laughs> I, you know, it was framed as he's evolving on the issue, but uh, Scott Pruitt said similar nice things in his <laughs> confirmation hearing and look what he did. Uh, not so, great. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not optimistic about this. It's a big role. Uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, the difference we went from John Kerry uh, to now Mike Pompeo. That's a, a huge, huge loss for us. <laughs> So, you know, I, I would disagree, and I know everyone's going to be really, really surprised about that. But um, as you mentioned earlier, Julia, Mike Pompeo is the Coke congressman or whatever. Uh, Mike Pompeo is a West Point graduate, a Harvard Law graduate, a five-year active uh, Marine, uh, and he's a really smart guy. He's a, a CIA director currently. Um, he ran in a congressional district that covers Wichita, which is where Coke Industries is based. So... It shouldn't surprise anyone that Koch was a big supporter of, of Mike Pompeo, but that doesn't undo any of his accomplishments. It doesn't unearn him his education or his service overseas. And I think, you know, and to the, be fair, being being pro fossil fuel is not bad depending on who you are. Well, the Kochs are highly misunderstood. I mean, anecdotally, they are they are truly married to their belief system, not to their profit motive. They own a series of ethanol facilities. Very few people know this. So when I worked in Congressman Latta's office, they were lobbying against the RFS. And they came in and said, Look, we're actually one of the biggest benefactors of the RFS. We understand markets. We bought up all these ethanol production facilities. We're making a killing on them. We just think it's a terrible way to do business. We don't want to make money off other people's backs. We want to make money in the free market. We're not dumb. If we have to control our supply chain, we will. But we're here advocating against our own financial interests because it's the right thing to do. They um, also came out in against the solar tariffs through yep. ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is backed by um, 
the Koch brothers, and they didn't like that tariffs would have upset the free market. Yeah, they came out against solar tariffs. Um, if, if anyone cares about this kind of stuff, their their biggest money right now is behind criminal justice reform, which is more of a liberal priority. They are solely fueled by ideology, not at all by profit motive. Uh, they've got plenty of money. And so the only reason I mention that is I think Pompeo was a kindred spirit because he was highly educated, very accomplished, and he is committed to free markets. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think it would be unfair to say, you know, he's a fossil fuel stooge who went from Congress to the CIA. I think that ignores the majority of his resume. And I think um, I think he would uh, I think the State Department and the employees there, whether appointed by Obama, uh, Trump, anyone before them or, or just career staff are going to be well served by having him in that position. And if he has evolved on climate change, what I can tell you is as a hawk, he's going to do what's best for our security interests. And if climate comes into play, he will fully respect that in my belief. This is why I like the show. I'm like feeling a little more positive about Mike Pom- Pompeo yeah, now. Our yeah. chances. I'm like, okay, you know. Well, those are really good points. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens if he's indeed confirmed. We're still waiting on a vote on Mike Pompeo. I really hope I'm wrong about this, and Shane is right. I would like. I would really love to be wrong. Well, and the other question would be, what, what's the alternative? I mean, if if you said on paper. Trump is going to appoint um, a Harvard Law grad who was a West Point grad who was a five-year uh, Marine or fill out whoever else Trump might appoint. I mean, if you had to guess, which way would you go? True. I just think his his record of appointing cabinet members so far has been poor at best. <laughs> yeah, and I think... I don't think maybe it's, disaster right, is actually the right word to use here. It's, it's been a disaster. Yeah. And I, and I don't think it's ever a good idea for any president to appoint a lot of House members to the cabinet. I think that's just a, a pretty bad idea. I think you should appoint people from outside government or from the Senate, which is a little bit more, I think, deliberative. And that's where I say I wanted to weigh in on, on Mike Pompeo is that I think if we think of him as a House member from rural Kansas, we're doing a disservice to his resume. And on that note, we're going to flip to our final section. If you can't say something nice. That's it. <laughs> so who wants to go first? Um, I'll go first because I Oberon him one. He gave me two nice compliments and I gave him one fake one uh, last week. Sadly, I'm probably going to give another fake one, but at least I'm going to give one. Um, it's showing up that counts. I, I uh, you know, we talk a lot about presidential appointments and what's good and what's bad. We talk about ethics and all that sort of stuff. And I think one thing that, that Brandon and I probably agree on is when you get elected president, the policies you pursue are your prerogative. The American the American people gave you that right. Um, so when you appoint someone to be you know, before the Senate, the question should not be, do I support this individual's policies? That's really not your right as a senator. Your right is, are they fit to serve in this office? And did I do my due diligence in, in oversight and making sure that I could nom- uh, uh, confirm this nomination? And there were three Democratic uh, senators who voted to confirm Andrew Wheeler this week, which I thought was great. I don't know Andrew Wheeler. I don't know much about him. I don't even know if he's a good pick. But I do know it's not my right to make that decision. And it seems like they viewed his resume. And similar to what Brandon said, he's an honest actor who can be trusted in public office. And that really is the Senate's determination in this case, not would he pursue policies that I would pursue on my own. So I think it's impressive that in this very toxic political climate, uh, three Democratic senators were were willing to step up and, and confirm an appointee. Nice. Brandon, what do you got? I used two for last week to bank <laughs> one for this week. You got nothing. I got nothing. Oh my. 
<laughs> but Shane this brought is going beer swimmingly. to uh, the podcast today, so I'm very grateful that Shane. Republicans uh, also like beer. <laughs> we like can a, all it's a hip Shane liberal beer. Too, it is. Right? Like, yeah. Oh my god, you're such a liberal poser. <laughs> do you have to buy that just to live in California? It's I think like, you do. I think yeah. it's a rule. It's, it's, a, it's Friday afternoon, and Shane brought beer, so I'm very yeah. grateful to Shane for it's the beer. It's a Stone IPA. Hey Stone, you want to sponsor this podcast? <laughs> they really should, because honestly, I probably would fund the sponsorship. You'll <laughs> <laughs> actually just make it all back. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This is, again, Political Climate. I'm Julia Piper here with Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Thanks for listening.